Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 188, The Murder of Stanford White. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And I'm glad to be back, Greg, to join you for a midsummer scandal. This is one of the most outrageous stories of Gilded Age New York City populated with some of the wealthiest people in the city and in some of the most exclusive places. We are, of course, talking the story of Evelyn Nesbitt and the murder of Stanford White. This isn't exactly a whodunit, since we know very well whodunit, but it is a story of summer intrigue, and it really focuses around the accomplished public life, the scandalous personal life, and the untimely death of one of New York's most important architects and leading citizens. You'll see the works of Stanford White throughout the city today. They're some of the most beloved treasures. But behind the scenes, Mr. White led a rather intoxicating life that would scandalize readers of newspapers when all of these details came out. Today, we'll explore the characters involved in this Gilded Age drama and retrace the events of a summer night in 1906 that shocked the city so much so that the trial that ensued was dubbed immediately the trial of the century. So from the dining rooms of the most glamorous restaurants in New York City to the heights of the tower on Madison Square Garden, join us as we investigate the murder of Stanford White. Well, to begin this story, Tom, I think we need a proper introduction to the central figure that is associated with this crime, one of New York's most prominent citizens, Stanford White. Stanford White wasn't just any architect. He was, as you said, one of the most famous people and the most prominent citizens in turn-of-the-century New York City. Today's story takes place on a hot summer's night in 1906, but Stanford White was born in New York City in 1853. The difference between New York in 1853 and 1906 was enormous. Yeah, night and day. 
And interestingly, he had a lot to do with that difference. When he was born on November 9th, 1853, to Richard Grant White and Alexina Black Mees, they lived in the Washington Square Park area, in the last vestiges of really old New York. The old genteel upper crust who had developed residences up along the northern side of Washington Square and was basically, that was the beginning of Fifth Avenue life. And it was around this particular time, although already they were moving northward. And there was society in New York. There were the Astors and the Vanderbilts. But what would happen after the Civil War, of course, would be an explosion of wealth in the city as the city and the country changed with great westward expansion uh, with the railroads, with the mines, with the shipping that came through the city, and with enormous immigration that would change and radically increase the city's population in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, this combination of forces, all these new people arriving, all this new money in the city, all these new millionaires, thousands of millionaires living in New York City, money would change everything. Well, this was the swelling background of his life as he grew up. All of this change was happening, and he was observing it firsthand. Right, though the city that he was observing as a child in the 1860s was still tethered to this old New York. His father, who had been born in 1822, Richard Grant White, was an intellectual and a critic. He studied to be a number of different things. He studied to be a lawyer. He studied to be a doctor at NYU. But he ended up being a literary critic and an art critic for several different publications, including the New York World. He sounds like a really cool guy, mm -hmm. you know, who always had sort of artists coming into the house, stopping by. He played the cello. They would have a regular weekly cello practice and performance in the living room. It almost sounds like there was a, maybe even a little bohemian undercurrent in the household, perhaps. Certainly an appreciation for art and, mm -hmm. and for intellect that would leave young Stanford very intellectually curious. It would also introduce him to other artists in town. He, you know, he knew Louis Comfort Tiffany and Frederick Law Olmsted and others because they would pass through the house. They were acquaintances of his father's. He's already rubbing shoulders here with some very significant names in New York. So, I mean, he certainly is... He's already in kind of the lap of luxury, or at least the, the lap of connections. Yes, because he wasn't exactly rich. His father was, you know, a critic after all, mm -hmm. but very well connected. And he got to see firsthand how things got done in the city. He got to see how the Gilded Age sausage was made, so to speak. <laughs> Nothing like Gilded Age <laughs> sausage. So how did he get his training in architecture? Well, he wanted to be an artist. And he received early career advice from one of his father's friends who told him that if he wanted to make a career out of art, he should really study architecture because one could build a career there and also work with beautiful objects and with art. And you're usually discussing things like classic Roman and classic Greek architecture as well, which requires you to hobnob with in some of the great schools in Europe. If you were lucky and you could afford to go over there and study that, he could afford to go up to Boston, where through, again, family connections, he was able to do an apprenticeship with the most prominent architect of the day, a man named Henry Hobson Richardson, who made a career of designing big, heavy, solidly constructed <laughs> churches and, mm -hmm. and, and buildings and mansions and such. And White would live in Boston and study with him for six years. Rather coincidentally, perhaps, or not, just a couple years before him, another man named Charles McKim did the same thing and was studying with Richardson in, in Boston. 
And it was here up in Boston where he would learn some of the nuts and bolts of architecture. Well, and the nails. And the, and the nails and screws. <laughs> yes. But it would be on a tour of Europe in 1878 where he would travel around. He would live for a while in Paris, and then he'd travel along his sketch pad, taking down uh, detailed notes and sketches of cathedral windows and classical forms and, and old structures uh, from France to Italy. Well, all of the stuff which he would borrow for his commissions later. Right, because it would be these kinds of structures that he would really bring back, or influences of mm-hmm. these, as he brought back Beaux-Arts and neoclassical design to the United States. And it would be back in New York in 1879, where young Stanford White would join Charles McKim and William Rutherford Mead in creating the firm McKim, Mead, and White. McKim, Mead, and White, the soon-to-be iconic architectural firm was formed in 1879 here. Right. Kind of a key moment for the Gilded Age. We're almost uh, sort of in the heart of the era we perceive as the Gilded Age. Because look at New York in 1879 or 1880 as it's really full steam going through this transformation, right? You've got not only thousands of immigrants arriving into the city every day and providing all this new labor power, and you've got the Lower East Side, as we've talked about, transforming into tenements, and you have the city's wealthy moving from their townhouses up to mansions, building mansions along Fifth Avenue. I should add that we're talking Gilded Age as if everyone's enjoying the fruits of the Gilded Age at this particular time. In fact, in most cases, the Gilded Age is, of course, benefiting the upper crust of New York society and that everyone else is sort of cramming in to New York. But the, the only way that you could argue that people are truly experiencing the benefits of the Gilded Age here is with extraordinary architecture that people could look at and appreciate. Well, there were other things, too. I mean, there was also Central Park that was created right. at this time. So there were some things for the people. There were big projects like the Brooklyn Bridge that were constructed that helped everyday New Yorkers out. But yeah, in terms of the architecture, the grand architecture that we think about from the Gilded Age, this was primarily being built for the city's elite. And there were suddenly so many more elites to build houses Mm -hmm. for, right? Because of all these new millionaires that were being produced by this new kind of economy that had come up out of the Civil War, that suddenly... You know, it was by building these grand houses with these great architects, these fanciful structures, that they could join society because it gave them standing to hire one of these top firms and build themselves this mansion in the middle of the most important city in the country. And it wasn't just by building a city mansion or a, uh, a countryside cottage, quote unquote, that one could establish themselves in society. One of these new millionaires could also establish themselves by joining the right kind of social club or even starting a new social club with others. There were university clubs. There were various forms of arts clubs. And then there were also cultural institutions that they could get behind and throw their money into and make a name for themselves, be it the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Metropolitan Opera or even the New York Public Library. These were new institutions that were all built during this period, the 1880s and 1890s and 1900, where the city was transformed by Beaux-Arts architecture and created a, a moment or a movement that was called the City Beautiful Movement, in which architectural philosophers, if you will, or theorists believed that you could elevate the city's issues, you could elevate the city and solve many of its ills through beautiful architecture, through beauty itself. 
And of all the firms in New York City that were designing and overseeing the construction of these mansions and clubhouses and cultural institutions, of all the firms at the very top would be, by 1900, McKim, Mead, and White. I have a practical question, Tom. I guess I never right. think about where was their. I just act- said architectural philosophers. Okay, <laughs> where was where were their offices? Like where, where where did they actually? I assume they didn't sit out in Central Park and sketch things. No, well they might have in their free time, but they had a couple different offices. At the time of our story in 1906, they're based at Fifth Avenue and 21st Street in a handsome nine-floor building uh, that was constructed in 1892. You might know it today, Greg, because on the ground floor, uh, it houses a Club Monaco. You know the Club Monaco at 21st and 5th? I know that store well. I believe it goes all the way back to the 1990s, actually. Yes. And they would take up several floors in this building. It wasn't just, obviously, McKim, Mead, and White designing all these structures. They had a, you know, whole teams of architects and drafters and clerks and such who were working on these projects. So what are some of their... Big early successes here. So, and, and for the first 10 years or so, they kind of focused on residences and building up yeah. big mansions. Well, skip past all of these well, those are, fancy I, houses. They're, they're, they're great. Fancy but. houses along Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, obviously the Villiard houses, you know, mm-hmm. that are still there today on Madison Avenue, and then big estates up in Newport and out on Long Island. But it was in 1889 when White would design the Washington Square Arch, not the one that we see today, but in 1889, he designed a similar one that was meant to celebrate the centennial of Washington's swearing in in New York City. And this is very classic White because he not only designed the arch, he also raised the money to construct it and he planned the ceremony around it. And this goes back to his training that he had growing up in his parents' house as a kid, understanding how to deal with city officials and to pull off an event. The next year, he would design Madison Square Garden in 1890, which is a second structure to sit on that location at the northeast corner of Madison Avenue and West 26th Street. And we will be going there and describing that building in much greater detail. But then there's a long list of other really prominent buildings, including... Clubs like the Harvard Club, the Metropolitan Club, the University Club, the Century Club, the Players Club, the Lambs Club. They designed churches like Judson Memorial, which is still there, Washington Square Park South. And then educational campuses. They designed Columbia University's Morningside Heights campus and most of those prominent buildings, along with NYU's Uptown campus. And they did work in Harvard and Princeton. And then parks, like they did various parts of Prospect Park. They they designed the Brooklyn Museum in 1895. They worked on libraries like the Morgan Library. In 1904, they started design work on New York's Penn Station, which would be obviously a huge project that is no longer sadly with us. Their architectural imprint still exists today in dozens of buildings throughout New York, but throughout the United States. I mean, they were internationally renowned. And, and left a big imprint on, on Boston as well, where they worked on Harvard, they built the Algonquin Club, the, they designed the Boston Public Library and Symphony Hall. It goes on and on. Oh, and then don't forget that they also did a major reconstruction and renovation of the White House in Washington. They oh, redesigned wow. and laid out the West Wing and the East Wing of the White House, and the firm worked long hours on laying out the mall. So they're not only enormously important to the architecture of New York, but also to the whole country. I mean, you could say, I think, that they 
defined American architecture in the late 19th century. I think that's a fair statement. The American Renaissance style and the Beaux-Arts style. Yeah. They brought classical Rome to the streets of American cities. Which is what's going to make the story that we're about to tell extra scandalous, I think. Because not only was the firm extremely powerful, but the key figures of Charles McKim and Stanford White, and to a lesser extent, Meade, were seen as real civic leaders. Stanford White was ever-present for the unveiling of a new statue, for the fetting of some event, for the planning of a parade, for the speaking in front of a crowd. If there was a big event like this and it was important to the city, there was a good chance that Stanford White was going to be on that stage and he was going to speak. At a night at the opera, he would show up late and make his way through the crowd, down toward his seat, because he was seen. He was always being seen, and everywhere he went, in a theater or in a restaurant, people would whisper to each other, there's Stanford White. He was known. He was a celebrity and a civic leader. But with great power comes, of course, great temptation. Well, his personal life was certainly trickier. In 1884, he married Bessie Smith from a prominent family in Long Island. They had a son named Lawrence, and Stanford and Bessie and Lawrence had an official family residence out on Long Island, although he also maintained, obviously, a home in New York because he was busy here almost every night engaging in social obligations and attending his various clubs and events. Yes, he did have an address on Gramercy Park, correct? That's correct, at 21st Street. Although he slept in many places. He also had a studio at 22 West 24th Street, and he also had his own private studio in a tower over the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. And then, of course, he also had his offices on Fifth Avenue. So he had many different places where he could reside and work on his work or tend to other social activities. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And one of these social activities was a certain attraction he had for chorus girls. For Corines. Corines. What's a Corine? <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of what you called a late 19th century, 20th century chorus girl. So let me go back to the date 1884. That was the year that he married? Yes, he married Bessie. Well, in a small town near Pittsburgh, that Christmas, so the very year that he married his wife, a baby girl was born named Florence Evelyn Nesbitt. 
We believe that to be her birth year, but for reasons which shall soon become self-explanatory, people were attempting to make her all different kinds of ages Mm. um, as she became more prominent. When Evelyn was a very young child, her father died, and her mother and her young brother were always scrambling to make ends meet. At one point in 1898, when she was 14 years old, they moved to Philadelphia, and all three of them, brother, sister, and mother, Nesbitt's, worked at Wanamaker's department store. And they worked very long hours here and just trying to like pull their lives together because they had a lot of debts that had accrued. Evelyn was 14 years old. Her brother Howard was 12 and they were working at Wanamaker's. She is almost a poster child to me for child labor laws, as you'll see here. Well, this isn't a very glamorous start. No, no, no. Well, she, especially after talking all this wealth in New York City, she's about to work her way in in a more unorthodox way here. So how did she get her break? Well, when she was 14 in Philadelphia, she began work as an artist model. Now, Evelyn was a ravishing, beautiful young woman here. She had long brown hair, which looked perfect in all the hairstyles of the day. She was incredibly comfortable with posing for illustrators, for painters, and eventually for photographs. Because she mm. was in the, this is the era when portrait photography starts becoming quite popular. She had a certain gaze that, in fact, it earned her the nickname Little Sphinx because it had mystery in it and you weren't quite sure what she was thinking and it could sometimes be rendered as sadness or joy you know based upon the illustrator's particular touch and i'm sorry this is when she's 15 14 15 yes okay. it, it, it was a unique skill that she had in fact although perhaps she was not quite emotionally ready for the outcomes of having this particular talent So in 1900, she moved to New York with her family, where Evelyn broke into the world of modeling. You know, I'm sure this is a story that's told today in the world of supermodels. But in this case, it was an elite group of artists that she was able to, like, get in with. It was just she had a couple early contacts that basically helped her out, including one James Carroll Beckwith, who was an important impressionist painter of the day, who had been quite taken with Evelyn's abilities and sort of essentially loaned her out to people. like got her a lot of jobs because he found that she was a very inspirational muse. So were these commercial artists? Was she Mostly. winding up in advertisements and stuff? Oh, abs- yeah, absolutely. Her advertisements, newspaper illustrations. Later, she would actually be one of the young Gibson girls. Oh. Uh, Charles Data Gibson was a very popular illustrator, and his images of women actually helped define beauty standards of the day. And so she even became a Gibson girl by 1905. But that's a little bit later in our story. And this Gibson girl would be corseted with her hair pinned up and would look simultaneously innocent and seductive. Well, simultaneously innocent and seductive, that seems rather advanced for a teenage model, right? She is still just a teenager. Yeah, yeah. She's like, by, by the time she gets to New York, she's she's 15 years old in 1900. And, and posing f- most for a male-dominated group of artists. This is a very dangerous slope, one can imagine. And as long as she lived with her mother, because her mother was in town, her mother would sometimes be sitting there while Evelyn was posing. And so as long as she was there, it was seemed there seemed to be a certain social acceptability to this concept. 
Well, as might be expected with this sudden fame that she suddenly enjoyed, she decided that she wanted to cross over to the Broadway stage. It was essentially what she was doing already. People were admiring her looks. Now she just had to, you know, add a little kick and maybe a couple songs in her. And the Broadway scene in 1900 was centered around the theaters around Herald Square and making their way north toward Times Square. And many of these shows were sort of female reviews and oh, yeah. strung together with silly plots I and mean, a she, comedian. Yeah. She kind of struck the jackpot, actually, in November of 1900, when just 15 years old, she was cast in the show Floridora, which was the, one of the biggest shows of its era. And it was at the Casino Theater at 39th and Broadway. In fact, most of her Broadway fame all comes before the age 20, which is kind of odd. And Floridora was one of the big hits of the season. Yes, this is one of the sexy archetypes of New York, uh, but probably not where a young teenage girl should be. So imagine that with all of this prestige of the magazine covers and being looked upon as an ideal beauty at such a young age. Of course, she's going to attract the attentions of wealthy men, say wealthy men who enjoy hanging out with their Corrines. Now, 1901, Stanford White is 47 years old. Evelyn Nesbitt is now 16. Mr. White enjoyed the company of several chorus girls by this time. Meanwhile, as his wife usually spent most of her time out in Long Island. So in 1901, Evelyn and another young woman were invited to White's 24th Street studio. Now, the address of this is 22 West 24th Street. So right on the other side of Fifth Avenue, but near Madison Square. Like really kind of right around the corner from Italy. Yeah. I mean, it's it, all of these places that we're talking about are just footsteps from each other. The studio had a curious location in that it was just upstairs from a first floor toy and novelty company called FAO Schwartz. This was FAO Schwartz's first location? <laughs> yes. And it's right underneath Stanford White's studio. So upstairs, Mr. White and the two young women dined on food delivered from Delmonico's, the finest restaurant in New York, and the room with richly decorated furniture and tapestries and paintings everywhere. So after a little afternoon champagne, they went upstairs to a green room that was also lushly furnished. Hanging in the center of the room was, using Evelyn's own words here, quote, A gorgeous swing with red velvet ropes set high in the ceiling at one end of the studio. A red velvet swing suspended from the ceiling. Yes. Okay. And so this is how he kind of wooed Chorus Girls, because it was sort of a fun way to interact. Slash creepy. (laughs) Really creepy. Right. So they have this champagne lunch in the middle of the day, and then they go all the way upstairs to this red velvet swing. Yeah. And just, and just you know, laugh and, and just swing all day. And that's, in fact, what uh, Evelyn did that afternoon. Now, they became quite close, Evelyn and Stanford. He became a mentor, father figure, slash suitor in the way that seemed somewhat acceptable in turn of the century New York. He set her up with jobs, became a bit of a benefactor, took care of Evelyn's mother and brother, Believe it or not, I mean, he was one of the most public figures in New York, and yet there was little criticism from the press. All of this was seen as fairly innocent. 
it wasn't even reported at all in the press that Stanford White was the suitor of a 16-year-old chorus girl. Well, it, it would be mentioned that she would be perhaps at his arm, but in his public spaces, like Madison Square Garden. She would continue to be invited to the 24th Street studio. It was only okay because Evelyn still lived with her mother, and these dates at the studio were always with another young woman and a companion. It was always kind of a group date, right? Mm-hmm. Well... One day, White decided to pay for Evelyn's mother to leave town to go visit some friends up in Pittsburgh. He invited Evelyn back to the 24th Street studio, where she was introduced to another room, an entire room of mirrors with a green couch. In this particular date, there were no other people there but Evelyn. So it was just the two of them. They proceeded to get drunk on more champagne, this teenager and Stanford White. He pushed aside the tapestry in this weird room, and led her to a small bedroom. Now, Evelyn's stories would vary over the years because she would have to tell this story so many times in court cases, in memoirs, in interviews. At some point, we can't really discern what happened. She either just passed out from drinking too much champagne or she was even possibly drugged at this point. She became unconscious. She awoke much later next to him and she had been sexually assaulted by him. He had had sex with her while she was unconscious. Thus began a rather bizarre, somewhat twisted affair between White and Nesbitt. For instance, for her 17th birthday, he turned the the garden, Madison Square Garden Tower Room, into a forest of flowers, hundreds of bouquets, topped with confectioner's sugar. So it looked like it was sort of wintertime. So wait, so despite this... Evelyn continued to see him? She didn't run away from Stanford White? I'm sure she was scandalized. I'm sure she felt trapped. I'm sure she felt quite confused. But she quickly understood that she had to play along if she wanted to continue to have support for her family, if she wanted to continue to have a career. You know, it meant playing this very distorted, unfair game that meant a life of comfort for her and her family. And of course, he would continue to see other chorus girls. So she wasn't his only muse. No, he had several muses, if that's the word you want to use to describe them. Nesbitt, however, would manage a brief courtship of her own with someone else at this time, a young man closer and more appropriate to her age, John Barrymore, the actor on the stage. He was 21. He certainly would have made him a much better suitor, I think, in more contemporary eyes, if it wasn't for the fact that he was a big drunk and horribly in debt. Oh. But other than that, she could have wound up being the grandmother of Drew Barrymore. (laughs) In another timeline, in fact, she could have been part of the Barrymore dynasty. So Stanford and these other men weren't morally suspicious enough. Here enters another man into our story, a man named Harry Kendall Thaw, the youngest son of a Pittsburgh railroad tycoon who also was living in the trappings of great wealth. Harry Thaw. So this is the third character in the story. In our story here, Mad Harry Thaw was a bit touched. Would you say? He would express himself in very sadistic ways that would be quite well known, and he would be turned out from pretty much all the respectable 
clubs, these clubs that you had mentioned, well, he would not be invited to join them because of, quote, behavior unbecoming a gentleman. He sounds like he was a real nervous type, walking around with a twitch and biting his nails and making everybody around him a little bit nervous. <laughs> but many had to put up with him and in restaurants and such because Money. he came from yeah. such great fortune. So Harry became enamored of Evelyn. He saw his, her show, The Wild Rose, dozens of times and wrote anonymous letters letters to her under the name Mr. Monroe for almost a year before making a proper introduction. They finally did meet at Rector's. It was also kind of a public meeting space because you just don't know. You're getting random anonymous letters. Evelyn didn't like him at first. She thought he had a kind of a scary grin on his face, similar to the one, you know, the Coney Island steeplechase, oh, yeah. smiley face. He kind of creeped her out at first for probably good reason. Understandably. But Thaw also had a certain obsession with Stanford White. He actually loathed Stanford White, developing an unnatural anger towards him. He thought that White was purposefully blocking his memberships to clubs and was spreading lies about Thaw to all the chorus girls. Did White even know Thaw? Was Thaw on White's radar? I think he was on the periphery. Okay. But not that... He wasn't an important figure. He just was another man that in a tuxedo they would sometimes see out at these fabulous restaurants. Evelyn obviously warmed up to Thaw enough that they took a bizarre European vacation where it was during this trip, it was Evelyn, Thaw, and Thaw's manservant Bedford. It was during this trip that she confessed the intimacies of her relations with Stanford White. This enraged Thaw even more and made him even hate Stanford White even more. But then he also acted insane on this trip. At one point during the night, he actually bursts in to Evelyn's room and began whipping her with a like a dog whip and then eventually sexually assaulted her as well in this trip. So this is a this is a very disturbed man. So Evelyn's stuck in Europe with this man who's abusing her, who is totally unstable. Even after all of that, when she arrived when they arrived back in New York and she's really inspecting her situation at this point with these two men, she makes to, what to us would be an almost inconceivable decision which is she actually decides to stay with Harry Thaw and finally marries him in February of 1905. At this point, she escapes the Broadway scene. She thinks she can sort of leave the whole Stanford White era behind and maybe just go live a life of in the lap of luxury, right? In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, right. So Harry, however, is still not done with his obsession with Stanford White. Even as far away as Pittsburgh, Harry, he claims all this like wild stuff that Stanford White has hired members of Monk Eastman's gang to assassinate him. So he's still building all of these Delusions. Delusions, right. At one point, Harry tells Evelyn never to say his name again and to only refer to him as the Beast. Ooh. So flash forward to June of 1906. They've been married for over a year now. Harry and Evelyn decide that they're going to take another European vacation, but with just a short stopover in New York. But they would never get on that boat to Europe. Okay, Greg, well, you've taken us up to June 25th of 1906. It's a warm summer night that would change the lives of these three people dramatically. 
Stanford White, Evelyn Nesbitt, and Harry Thaw. Evelyn and Harry were staying at the Hotel Lorraine, which was located at 2 East 45th Street, 45th and 5th Avenue. It wasn't a terribly fancy place, but it was very comfortable, and they could have a nice apartment. Evelyn woke up that day with a sore throat, which bothered Harry because, well, they were about to get on the America and set off for Europe. He made her go to the doctor to have this checked up, and while she was leaving the doctor, she ran into Stanford White, as Mm. luck would have it. They chatted, and then once she got back to the hotel, well, she had this agreement with her husband, Harry, that if she ever saw him again or had any contact with White... With the Beast. With the Beast, she would tell him. So she told him that she had run into the Beast, and he was, of course, enraged. Later that afternoon, he told her to wash up for dinner and get ready for the show. He had purchased tickets for the grand opening of Mamselle Champagne. Which was playing at Madison Square Garden on the rooftop, the right? Roof, the roof garden at the very top of Madison Square Garden. While she washed up and took a bath, he was going to get a drink. So he left the Hotel Lorraine at 45th and 5th, and he walked to Sherry's at 7 p.m. Sherry's was a restaurant and an apartment hotel that was located at 44th and 5th, so just down a block. It was a site of some famous and infamous meals and celebrations, some of them involving nude females popping out of things. <laughs> oh, God. And, and this restaurant and building were designed by, you guessed it, Stanford White. That's right. On this hot summer night, oddly... Harry Thaw was walking down the street and into Sherry's wearing an overcoat, which people did note as a bit odd. That would be gothic today, but he was just he was just being a weirdo. But because he was an eccentric, people just accepted that. He, he wouldn't take it off. He kept it on. It was almost like he was concealing something. He ordered not just one, not just two, but three whiskeys over the course of a few minutes, knocking each of them back. It cost 50 cents. And he paid with a $100 bill. Then he walked back up Fifth Avenue to the hotel to get Evelyn. At 8 o'clock, their party arrived at the Cafe Martin. Now, the Martin was a rather fabulous restaurant at 26th Street and Broadway. Between Fifth and and Broadway on 26th Street. Again, like two blocks up from Stanford's (laughs) private studio. Just off of Madison Square Park here. Exactly. It was the old Delmonico's. Delmonico's moved into the space in 1876. And it was here in this restaurant that Delmonico's invented the Eggs Benedict. Wow. But Delmonico's would move up to 44th Street in 1899, and some French brothers, the Martins, would take over the the restaurant space in 1902, opening up the Café Martin. It had a grand, large dining room with lots of Art Nouveau styling and chandeliers and 18-foot French doors and windows. So this is where Evelyn and Harry had dinner. They walked in with with two friends of theirs, and they were seated in this main dining room at a table set with finery and a white tablecloth. Harry's back was to the main entrance, and from her seat, Evelyn could see who was coming in and going. And there they enjoyed dinner, two bottles of champagne, which was fitting in that they were going to see Mademoiselle (laughs) Champagne just a couple blocks away afterwards. And they chatted about the night and about who they might see and about the show. And then Evelyn noticed something that kind of threw her off a little, and she tried to hide it and pretend that she hadn't just seen it. Hmm. What was that? Well, naturally, she saw Stanford White, who had just walked into the main entrance. 
Stanford had planned to go to Philadelphia that day to, to work on another project, but instead his son Lawrence came down from Harvard to the city and brought along a, f- a friend of his from school, Leroy King, and asked his dad if they wanted to go out for dinner. So the three of them went to the Cafe Martin that evening for dinner. They walked in the main entrance, and then they proceeded upstairs to head up to the balcony that overlooked Broadway to dine. Evelyn just saw them come in, and maybe, maybe they made eye contact, we don't know. But she was sufficiently thrown off that Harry noticed it. Yeah, freaked out, I'm sure. And so she passed a note to her husband, Harry, that simply said, The bee is here. The beast. beast. This threw Harry into a nervous fit. He could no longer speak. The dinner sort of came to a halt. No more champagne was ordered. He became nervous, started biting his nails, and his eyes started darting around the room. They knew it was time to go. They paid their bill, and they left. And they walked along 26th Street, along the top of Madison Square. They walked east toward the giant structure that was Madison Square Garden. Already and lit up for the show on the roof, I assume. Right. That was just a show up on the roof. But don't forget the Madison Square Garden, this structure, which was built in 1890 and designed, of course, by Stanford White, this massive mix of Moorish and Beaux-Arts architecture. The center of it, the central auditorium, could seat 8,000 people. But that was just downstairs. They were seeing a show up on the roof garden with Japanese lanterns hanging. And above it all was the bell tower that White Mm -hmm. had designed, based it on the, the bell tower, the cathedral in Seville, Spain, that shot up 32 stories above the roof garden. And a tower that Evelyn knew quite well. As did some of the other elite of the city who had had parties up there that they never really spoke publicly about. Hmm. So Harry, Evelyn, and their guests walked through the warm June night over to the garden's main entrance, and Harry still was wearing that overcoat, which made everybody feel a little bit uncomfortable. They took the elevator up to the top, to the roof garden, and they were seated at their table, which was quite a ways from the stage. They didn't have great seats this night. Harry had other plans, however. He spotted someone, and he stood up, and he he took off through the night, and he, he sort of meandered through the tables, across the roof garden, to the table of James Clink Smith, who was the brother-in-law of Stanford White. He was, after all, the brother of Bessie Smith, Stanford's Oh, the brother-in-law. Okay. Right. He was sitting at a table with a free chair, and Harry asked if he could sit down and sit with him for a bit. And James said, sure, sit, sit down here. Hmm. Music was playing. The show was kind of going on, but this was, again, sort of a freewheeling type of thing where you were watching women singing and dancing and kicking and some comedy bits, but you could also hold little conversations with people at your table. It doesn't sound like it was an impressive show in any sense. And in the, in the case of Harry and James, they could sit there and they enjoyed a cigar together while they tried to have a little bit of conversation. But the conversation got a little odd, especially after Harry asked James if Harry could set James up with a chorus girl, even though he knew <laughs> that he was, he was happily married. As, a, as though, you know, Harry had these connections. Well, he probably still did know some chorus mm-hmm. girls. But regardless, Harry seemed very odd. James kept his distance, and the show continued on. At 10.55, Harry stood up and kind of wandered off through the theater again, drifting along the Madison Avenue side of the rooftop, like he was sort of waiting for somebody to appear. He, he drifted along sort of agitated. Five minutes later, at 11 o'clock, Stanford White entered the rooftop and started making his way toward his table, which was a short distance from the stage. 
Of course, he was entering late like he always did, and he was being seen. Probably he was noted more than anything happening on the stage. Even by the people on the stage, they were taking note yeah. of the fact well, that that's Stanford what, White was walking through the audience. That frequently happens when a famous person enters into the theater. And uh, things kind of stop for a second. And here he was, this tall, red-haired, mustached, imposing figure, walking along, slapping people on the back, smiling, making his way to his table while Harry Short sang the song, I Could Love a Thousand Girls. Harry edged closer to Stanford's table. Stanford took his seat, and after sitting for a bit with the garden's caterer, he sat at the table alone, watching the girls singing and dancing right in front of him, and smiling as they started the show's finale, a number in which they were drawing their swords and lifting them high into the air. They sang and they danced, they raised their swords, and at 11.05, Harry approached Stanford's table just a few feet from him, where he was still sitting there, his elbow on the table, hand resting on his hand, watching the show. Did he notice that Harry was approaching him? Harry reached into his coat and pulled out a gun. Stanford sensed his presence, turned to see who it was, and Harry fired his gun three times, hitting Stanford once in the right eye and twice in the shoulder. Stanford's elbow fell off the table and his body fell forward, collapsing onto his own table, sending glasses and plates flying into the air and crashing to the ground. Everything stopped. The music, the show, the audience. Somebody in the back laughed because they thought this was part of the show. It was spectacular. Or was it? Was this just part of the show playing out in the audience? But then those around them noticed the blood. There were screams and there was panic as people crushed toward the door. Harry stood, meanwhile, over Stanford. He held his revolver in the air and he emptied its cartridges to show the audience that the shooting was done. But this didn't really calm the crowd. And the conductor tried to calm things, you know, by striking up the band and making the women sing again. The New York Times would say the next day, the girls who romped on the stage were paralyzed with horror, and it was impossible to bring the performance to an orderly close. So Harry just stood there with his gun in the air. Well, he did, and then realized it was probably a good idea to leave. Yes. So he made his way toward the elevator, walking calmly, still with his gun. And there at the elevator, a fireman arrested him. And his response to the fireman was simply, he deserved it. And I can prove it. He ruined my wife and then deserted the girl. And it was there that a police officer uh, named Officer Debs of the Tenderloin District joined them and they got into the elevator where they were also joined by Evelyn, who said, oh, Harry, why did you do it? And Harry said, it's all right, dear. It's all right. I probably saved your life. They descended in the elevator and they walked to the police station at 30th and 6th. With Harry not saying much, he was just in a daze. And once there at the police station, he gave his name as John Smith, mm -hmm. said he was a student residing at number 18 <laughs> Lafayette Square, Philadelphia. And he was charged with homicide and locked up on the spot. From everything I've read, it's, it's like he had this strange pride, the sense of accomplishment, that it seems that he had done something that he had wanted to do for a long time and was not ashamed of it. Well, obviously, he had just committed this huge crime in front of hundreds of people. It was extraordinarily public. Well, this show, Mamzelle Champagne, although a creative flop, because of this horrible event that happened on this particular night, it actually played for several months 
at the garden. And many people, because this is just how morbid New Yorkers can be sometimes, many people wanted to sit in the very spot that Stanford White had been assassinated to watch this particular show. Harry was eventually sent down to the tombs prison, where he stayed for several months, although it seems like he didn't have a, like a bad living situation down at the jail. In fact, he would sometimes enjoy steak and wine from Delmonico's, which was delivered to his cell. This is just, you know, again, another perk of being in the 1% of the Gilded Age. Newspapers, of course, went insane with this, quote, garden tragedy instantly calling it the crime of the century, spread throughout the world, became international news. Thomas Edison even rushed out a film, a quickie movie that could be shown at the Nickelodeons called Rooftop Murder. In the days leading up to the trial, everyone's name was dragged through the mud, especially Stanford White, because people began coming forward with tales of his debaucheries and misadventures. In many cases, none none of it really having anything to do with the case, but it was just to disparage his character. But this was happening with Harry and even with Evelyn. The case gets even stranger a week later with the mysterious death of Thaw's manservant, Bedford. He mysteriously died, and some thought it was a cover-up, because Bedford, of course, knew his share of dark secrets about Thaw's mental health. But with Stanford dying, the spectacular and public death, his public reputation also died with him, because it sounds like people came forward almost immediately with these salacious details. Well, it was, you know, you had this, like, brief halo period where, of course, everyone speaks kindly. And then as little details came out about the case and people found out more details about Evelyn and Stanford, then, yeah, his his reputation deteriorated kind of rapidly. As the trial arrived, Thaw's lawyers were prepared to declare insanity, but Thaw actually wanted a big, showy trial. He wanted everyone to know his rage and how he had stepped forward to salvage his wife's reputation. At least that's how he saw it. The trial began on January 23rd, 1907 and ran through April. It was a circus of a trial. Thousands of people were outside every day selling little replicas of red velvet swings and postcards with Evelyn's face on it. For the first time in American history, the jurors that were chosen for this trial would be sequestered, uh, meaning that the jurors couldn't go home afterwards. I mean, they obviously couldn't discuss the case anyway, but now they were actually prevented from going Mm. home. They were actually sequestered. The jury, though, could not come to a conclusion. It was deadlocked. So they needed another trial. A year later, in January of 1908, this one was much shorter, and he finally pled not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, which was not really a common thing. And did the jury reach a verdict in this trial? They did, and he was declared temporarily insane in the death of Stanford White. He was sent up the river to Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane, which is... Today, you know Beacon, New York, oh, sure, so yeah. it's r- very close to that. Uh, yet for years afterwards, Thaw's lawyers fought to even overturn this and then to say he was not insane. So again, this is the this notion of incredibly wealthy people just having access to resources to get them off for these kinds of crimes. In 1915, there was a brand new trial and Thaw was cleared of all charges. So by July 16th, 1915, 
2015, he was a free man. So he was cleared of the murder, and he no longer had to live in a mental institution. Right. He was completely was scot-free by 1915. Again, remarkable for a man who had just shot dead another man in front of hundreds of people. He was unquestionably guilty, right? I mean, at least in terms of the, the basic events of the crime here. Bethal was a seriously sick man. The following year, um, he led a teenage boy into a room at the Hotel McAlpin in Herald Square, and he ended up sexually assaulting and whipping this teenager with dog whips similar in similar fashion as he had done with Evelyn, and kept the teenager prisoner for almost a day in the hotel room before he escaped, and of course, Thaw was again arrested and again thrown into another mental institution where he stayed for several years. So what happened to Evelyn throughout this whole story? Were they still married? They were still married. Actually, in 1910, something strange happened. Evelyn got pregnant. And so she came to Thaw and she said, well, this is your child during one of our conjugal visits. And he refused to accept the lineage of this child. And then when he got out of Matawan, they divorced. So they were no longer married. Evelyn would eventually escape to Europe. Her notoriety actually helped her get a little work on the stage. She was even a dancer in a show called Hello Ragtime. She came back to New York in the 1920s and owned a speakeasy in Hell's Kitchen um, at 228 West 52nd Street. That was in 1926. And this was when Thaw was already out of the mental institution the second time. So he's back out. Did they ever cross paths? Did he ever head to her speakeasy? Yes. In 1926, she claims that he did arrive at the speakeasy or tea house. As she a tea house, of course. Yes. Uh, he showed up one night and, quote, violently pounded the table and swept from it all the bottles and glasses to the floor. Mm. By the way, today, I don't know if you know where Gallagher's Steakhouse oh, is. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, that's where her speakeasy he was in that building. So given his reaction, I guess they didn't get back together. No, no, they did not get back together as a, as a couple. I mean, they, they had moments of reconciliation, which just even sounds shocking to me, but they never really got back together as a husband and wife. She actually lived a very long life, dying at age 82 in 1967. Wow. And she had spent most of her life, you know, trying to take back the story, trying to rehabilitate her own reputation. Um, she was even a consultant in the sort of kitschy 1950s film called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, which depicts the events that we've discussed in the show in a more, more innocent viewpoint, I guess. She also had her own biography, and then there are numerous books that have been written on this very subject several of which you and I have consulted in preparation for this show. Which books did you read? Um, well, I my favorite one, I have two or three, but the one I liked the best, the one that I found was the most engaging read, was this book called American Eve, Evelyn Nesbitt, Stanford White, The Birth of the It Girl, and The Crime of the Century by Paula Uraboro. Again, there's many books on this subject. This is the one I personally recommend. And my book of choice is simply called Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White by Michael Mooney. It came out in 1976, but it again tells not just the story of the two of them, but sort of places McKim Mead and White's reputation in context. We will have many photos on the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com that also place Stanford White, Evelyn Nesbitt, and Harry Thaw in, in historical context. And there are some really amazing, beautiful, classic Portraits of Evelyn Nesbitt, which I'll have on the blog. 
and we will continue our discussion even delving into some of the newspaper reports surrounding the event in our extra show that we're recording for the patrons of the show. If you would like to join us, head to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, where you can join the show for as little as a dollar a month and help our effort to produce twice as many shows. You can also check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And tickets are now on sale for a live show that we are doing in coordination with the podcast The Ensemblist. The show will be at 54 Below on September 13th, 2015, and the subject will actually be the history of an iconic theater called the St. James Theater. It'll be us talking about history, but then we'll actually have people who are coming in to sing some of the great songs that made their debut there. In fact, some people who actually debuted those songs there themselves. It is certain to be a fun, music-filled evening, and we would love to have you join us. So for more information on this, including tickets, check out the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, or go directly to the 54 Below website where you can purchase tickets. So thank you very much for listening to our tale of the murder of Stanford White. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.